These are tattoos that I did when I was in prison. On yourself? Yeah, like I did this arm. Because you're right-handed, so you did your left arm. (laughs) (laughs) I had other people do this arm, but the hands and the handcuffs with the butterfly on top. You did that yourself? Mm Mm-hmm. The butterfly represents freedom. Listening to Code Switch, I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. And I'm Gene Demby. Gene, imagine yourself jumping in your lowrider Impala, blasting some oldies mm-hmm. like Smile Now, Cry Later by Sunny and the Sunliners, and holding your ruka close with your right arm that's all tatted up. That sounds like how I live my life. Actually, not true at all. Um, I don't drive. Um, I don't have any tats. Um, I don't even know what a ruka is. What is a ruka? <laughs> Aruka is a girlfriend. It's like old school cholo slang for girlfriend. Okay, yeah, I can do that part. You know I don't have tattoos either. Which is surprising. I would think of all the people on our team, you would be the most likely to have tattoos. I'm going to take that as a compliment. Yeah, no, I meant it in the, in the most complimentary way possible. One in five adults in the U.S. have tattoos. That's crazy. So I'm talking about tattoos right now because I went to do this story Uh, At the Natural History Museum, they had this tattoo exhibition, and it was 5,000 years of tattoo history. Wow. And I learned something super code switchy about a type of tattoo called black and gray. Okay. I think you've seen these tattoos. Portraits of friends or family members who've passed. They look like almost like black and white photos. Oh, I think I know which ones you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Or like these Catholic statue tattoos where you can see like the folds and the robes. Right, right. Lettering. Old English lettering, that kind of thing. Think pox, thug life tattoo, but nicer. (laughs) Nicer than pox, thug life tattoo, which doesn't take much. This is some West Coast stuff. Oh, yeah. It's totally West Coast stuff. And I learned that Chicano tattoo artists and Mexican-Americans in East L.A. are actually responsible for changing the tattoo game worldwide Uh with this style, black and gray style, like the guy we heard at the very start of this episode. Hi, I'm Freddie Negretti, tattoo artist here at Shamrock Social Club on the world-famous Sunset Strip. Pretty Negretti. That's a dope name. He's in his 60s now, and he's still tattooing uh, at the Shamrock Social Club. I met up with him there. Uh, The rich and famous have been tattooed there. We're talking about Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, Johnny Depp. But on the day that I went, Freddie was actually getting ready to tattoo a 22-year-old who works on an offshore supply ship. Zach Osborne came all the way from Louisiana, all the way from the Gulf, for a Freddie Negretti black and gray tattoo. How did you choose him? Internet, Instagram mainly. And you liked his work? Definitely. Clean lines, good shading. What do you know about this this style of tattoo, like the history of it? Do you know anything about it? No, history-wise, no. But where does the history of black and gray tattoos come from? Here's the short answer from Freddie. Prison ingenuity. (laughs) Gene, the story of black and gray is all tied up with Freddie's life story. It's about making beautiful things from the ugliest of circumstances. Ooh, Shireen, color me intrigued. I guess black and gray me intrigued, I suppose. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Netflix, with season two of Dear White People from creator Justin Simeon, a satirical comedy that explores themes of race and identity in the setting of a predominantly white Ivy League college, now streaming only on Netflix. 
Hey fellow music nerds, I'm Robin Hilton with All Songs Considered, one of the hosts of NPR's Music Discovery Podcast. Each week, we geek out over our favorite new songs and artists and play loads of music for you to fall in love with. Hear All Songs Considered in the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Shireen. Jean. Code switch. Jean, can you read a quote for me? I got you, homie. Okay. I displayed my ink with pride, a mix of Aztec, Mexican revolutionary, and Cholo imagery. These were our campfire stories, our myths, the marks of our culture. And once marked, you were marked for life. I love that quote. That's from Freddie Negretti's memoir, Smile Now, Cry Later, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos, My Life in Black and Gray. Mm. And Gene, Freddie is marked for life and all over his body. Um, on the day that I went to the Shamrock Social Club to interview him, he was wearing a T-shirt so I could see the menagerie of faded tattoos that are on both of his arms. And I asked him to tell me about the ones he did on himself, the ones he did on his left arm. This is a Japanese writing for a, a Mexican saying called uh, Mi Vida es un Sueño, My Life is a Dream. This is my old gang tag. Loco Coyote. <laughs> Loco with a K. Just different things, the boxing gloves, it's a box of the boys club. Yeah, even this. I, I'm trying to imagine doing that. Because one of them is on your elbow. That's crazy. Did you have a mirror? No, I was in a cell. Oh, we had a mirror, but it's just a piece of metal on the wall. <laughs> How old were you when you did those? Probably 17, 18. They're amazing. Did them with a homemade machine, prison-style tattoo machine. How do you feel about them over the years? I wouldn't change them. I've thought about just going over them, making them look fresh and new. Maybe I might do that. I don't know. But they're my tattoos. They're a part of me. So at this point, Gene, you know Freddie's done time. Right, right, right. A lot of time. He was in juvenile detention facilities starting when he was in junior high. He was in and out of lockup as an adult. Mm. And he says that's really where black and gray style originated. Prison ingenuity. <laughs> prison ingenuity. Yeah, like how do you even do this in prison? Um, but before we, before we get into the history of the tattoos, like... What is Freddie's deal? You just said that he was in jail, he got locked up. Like, what is his story? Oh, he has a fascinating backstory. He's from L.A., okay? He was born in East L.A., and his parents met in this neighborhood called Boyle Heights, which is a neighborhood that's more than 90% Latino these days. And those Latinos are mostly Mexican. But back in the 50s, there was also a pretty robust Jewish community there. Okay. And one of the main streets that runs through Boyle Heights is now called Cesar Chavez, but it used to be called Brooklyn Avenue. My mom was a Jewish immigrant living in Boyle Heights. My dad was a Pachuco gangster. She, she got kicked out of the family and everything for being with a Hispanic guy, but I like that bit of history, yeah. you know, and that, that's just, my mother's Jewish, my dad's Mexican. My, my mother died when I was pretty young, uh, actually 14. So, and I was in jail or something when she died. But I didn't even meet her till, till later on. So, oh. yeah, because they went to prison and I was in foster care. Uh, my dad went to prison for robbing uh, a depot, a train depot or something like that. And my mother went to prison for killing some girl. She, she shot her with a, a zip gun. A zip gun was like a homemade gun that they would use in the streets back then. That's a really rough childhood. Yeah, and he told me his foster home experience was terrible, too. Like, uh, my sister and I, at least they kept us together. We were happy about that, but 
you know, so you go through a lot of things. You never get to feel, you know, the love and things like that, you know, being in foster homes. And then um, we were in a foster home that was pretty abusive, you know, like they used to beat us. It was a white foster home, so they were trying to beat the Mexican out of us. (laughs) He he does laugh about his, his, you know, the horrible circumstances in his life. I think it's like laugh to keep from crying maybe right, right. i mean i'm just assuming but that foster home he he was talking about was in a white part of san gabriel and he started running away from that foster home at 11 years old back then he was known as freddie baker and he was trying on this like surfer boy white boy identity trying to blend in with the kids from around the foster home Um, But after one of these runaway attempts, he was picked up and taken to Central Juvenile Hall in Los Angeles. And that's where Freddie remembers meeting an older Mexican kid who went by Buckwheat. Buckwheat. Buckwheat was covered in hand-poked tattoos made with a sewing needle and mascara. Ouch. And Buckwheat was a gang member. And Freddie was fascinated by Buckwheat and meeting him changed the course of his life. He wanted to reclaim his Mexican roots and he was looking for belonging, a family, you know, that was better than this foster family. And he accomplished both those things the only way he knew how to at 12 years old by joining a pretty notorious Mexican gang called Sangra. So that's where the local coyote uh, moniker comes from. Right. Freddie becomes a Sangra member. He's a gang member and he gets into all kinds of trouble which lands him in juvenile detention over and over again and, and that's where he started drawing all the time. He says his artwork was his currency in lockup. Anything you, you needed it was like a way to trade for a favor. What Freddie did was he made bespoke stationery. He made stationery um, for the other guys to write letters home on. And wow. they'd make copies in the print shop. And that stationery supposedly ended up in all kinds of correctional facilities throughout Southern California. Well, so there's like all these prisons or jails with like Freddie's art just yes. like in the, like, the, that's crazy. And the stationery had roses on it or charras mexicanas, these badass Mexican cowgirls or like Catholic symbols like Our Lady of Guadalupe. There's one design in particular that he's still known for all these years later. When I was locked up, I would always look for different ideas, you know, through magazines and stuff like that, you know, to put on the stationery. And uh, one time... I saw a little ad for acting workshop, and it had those masks, and I thought of my favorite song at the time, which was Smile and I'll Cry Later. So I did those faces, comedy tragedy mask, you know, and I wrote Smile and I'll Cry Later and put it on the stationery. So there's, there's two masks that, like, I guess, I think they're on the playbill thing, mm-hmm. where you, they can sit next to each other, like one of them is smiling, one of them is, like, in agony. And they have those ribbons coming off the masks. Right, right, those right, right. Ones. And Freddie went from making stationery for dudes in lockup to giving them tattoos. And that transition happened. I know, that's weird, right? But, and you're, we're going to get to why. That transition happened after he was sent to a pretty infamous youth authority facility after shooting up a gang member's house. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're throwing a lot at me right now. Okay, wait, wait. So he shot up yes. somebody's crib? Like, what do we do? What? So he was in this gang, the Sangra gang, and they had a uh-huh. long-running beef with the Loma gang. Okay. And Freddie was right in the middle of all that. And when he was 18, he shot up this 
rival gang member's house. Um, nobody died, so I just want to put that out there. Ooh, thankfully. Um, okay. and, and, you know, he went in front of the judge, and the judge was basically like, looked at him and was like, you're too young. This is ridiculous. I can't send you to a men's prison for years and years and years. So she took mercy on him, and she sent him to a different program, a program for what he calls hardcore youth. You had to get in big trouble. They'd send you to prison, Tracy Prison, and you'd be in there for 90 days. And then they sent you back to uh, this program called Tamarack Program. And it was in this old building, all granite. It looked like a dark dungeon. It was awesome looking, you know. And your prison door was was like this big iron door, you know, like a little square with bars in it, you know. The guys in there were so nuts. The way they dealt with us was like this, you know, we'll let you tattoo, you know, we won't search your rooms, just don't kill each other. <laughs> it was kind of like a deal, you know, like, and so I ended up in a place in an institution where they let us tattoo. And we, we, we got the designs for how to make a tattoo machine from another prison. But that's where I learned. And so for the next three years, being locked up in that Tamarack program, I tattooed every day. I tattooed myself all up. I even tattooed some of the staff members. All right, Shereen, I have like a logistical question. Yes. How are you? How are they making these tattoos? Like we says, he's doing it with a homemade machine. Like right. what? What does that look like? So the machines were made from parts from ballpoint pens, the gears and stuff from old tape players, a guitar string, and a needle. What, one needle. What, but what? What about the ink though? You know, I asked him that too, and he said that sometimes they'd get access to tattoo ink um, called Higgins. Sometimes the guards would like sneak it into you. If not, you would have to burn something like a chest piece or baby oil. And then when you burn it, it gives off like a black suit. And you would capture that suit with a piece of paper, scrape it off the ashes, and uh, mix the ink out of it. We would let it sit on our window seal. And it would evaporate, which would make it blacker, or add water to it, which would make it lighter. So that's the prison ingenuity. Exactly. And so the tattoos were black and gray, right? Because that's right. all they had access that's what they had, to. Right. And they were known as prison style tattoos or joint style tattoos. So they probably changed the name to black and gray just to get away from the stigma, right? Of calling it prison style, right? I don't care what they say about Eugene, you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them to come to No, that's exactly why. The story starts in the mid-1970s, and legend has it that a white biker dude, tattoo artist, opened a little shop on Whittier Boulevard in East L.A. called Good Time Charlie's Tattoo Land. His wow. name was, I know, I love the name. His name was Charlie Cartwright, and he worked with this other artist named Jack Rudy, who was also white. Their clientele, though, was mostly Mexican and Mexican-American. Mm. And they wanted a particular style of tattoo. The tattoos they did in La Pinta, or prison. Prison tattoos, gotcha. Right. So the Smile Now, Cry Later was a popular one. And there were other designs Freddie sketched in prison that were up as flashwork on the walls of Good Time Charlie's Tattoo Land. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, his stationery ended up all over. Um, 
I guess it ended up on the walls of this tattoo shop, too, in East L.A. So they're, like, kind of profiting off of Freddie's designs. And the problem was they couldn't be done with these professional machines that Jack and Charlie were using at the time. Because those machines had, like, multiple needles. And they made these fat lines. Think of... You know, those tattoos with, like, playing cards or, um, you know, hearts with with an arrow going through them. Like, they're super bright colors and they have these big, fat, black outlines around them. Right, right. So what Jack and Charlie did was pretty innovative. They altered their machines um, so they'd work with one needle and they gave the people what they wanted. Joint style. Fine line, black and gray shading, Aztec images because we feel like we're warriors revolutionary images because we're rebels, religious images, you know, because we're Catholic, the portraits, because uh, we like remembering people that we love that passed away. The lettering was really big. That, that We started the lettering, you know, like uh, Old English on the stomach, because we wanted to say something about who we were and where we were from, and you could do that with writing. Freddie told me when he got out... Uh, he went to the shop and he was like, yo, that's my art on your walls. Right, right. <laughs> and, and Jack said, yeah, right. Everybody says that. Everybody says their uncle did it or their cousin did it or their homie did it. Mm-hmm. And Freddie was like, nah, I have proof. And he had some of the originals from that stationery he made when he was in lockup. And at this point, he was tattooing um, with a homemade machine in his kitchen, charging 15 or 20 bucks a tattoo. And he'd send people over to Good Time Charlie's in East L.A., like a calling card to show off his work because he really, really wanted to land a job there. Wow. Which is something he did in 1977. I was like the first Chicano that ever even got a job as a professional tattoo artist. So he says there were plenty of Chicanos like him who did prison tattoos inside and outside of the joint with a homemade machine in their kitchen mm-hmm. or like in the garage or in prison. But he's really the first guy to do it professionally. And that happened after Good Time Charlie Cartwright found God, became so, a born-again Christian. <laughs> okay. So a different kind of good time now. Yes. Good got, news, Charlie. Good news, Charlie. He got out of the tattoo business, and he ended up selling his shop to an art school graduate living in San Francisco named Ed Hardy. <laughs> I know you know that name. Yes. So is it the Ed Hardy? The dude with the, the Ed Hardy. The cheesy ass clothing for like the dude bros. Got all the shiny lettering. You wear yes. it with your distressed jeans and your and square toe kind of cool reaction shoes. That's the Ed Hardy. Actually, it's not because most of these tattoo artists that I talked to, I talked to a bunch of tattoo artists for this story, and uh-huh. they were like, "Please don't judge him based on that brand. <laughs> He's a world renowned artist, and he is really credited um, for upping the tattoo game in the U.S." and helping get it recognized as a legitimate art form. I did not know that. Yeah, so that's Ed Hardy. And it was after Ed bought Good Time Charlie's that Freddie Negretti was hired in 1977. And it was Ed who suggested that they stop referring to this style of tattoo as prison style or joint style and start calling it black and gray realism. Wow. Apologies for the shade, Ed Hardy. My bad. Black and gray. Okay. Freddie told me those couple of years tattooing in East L.A. were pretty awesome. 
despite all the gang violence, because there was like a the lot of gang 70s? violence. 70s? What, do we have a time period? Yes. Mm-hmm. So it was 1977. So it was like, I think it was in 1980 when they decided to move the shop because okay. things got cr- way too crazy in East L.A. Okay. But those couple of years, there was this big lowrider cruising scene down mm-hmm. Whittier Boulevard. Um, Freddie says it was free advertising for their tattoo art. And he told me the popularity of tattoos today, these days, brings him back to those good old days. That energy back in the 70s on Winter Boulevard in East L.A. with the Chicano people, their love for tattoos and how we had them lined up out the door every day, you know, like that excitement has transferred into mainstream society. Like everyone has a tattoo now. Like I'm rare. I have no tattoos. But... We can change that up for you. Sure, <laughs> you gonna let him? You gonna let him change that up for you? I might. I mean, I have never thought so seriously about getting a tattoo as I have after doing this story and while I was working on this story. I actually have this photo of my parents right before they got married, and they're looking down at my mom's ring. <laughs> <laughs> really cheesy and cute. And my mom was like, you better not do that. <laughs> don't you dare do that. You I know. I, so now I don't want to upset them, you know, in their golden years. But yeah, if I was going to get a tattoo, that would be it. And I would have Freddie do it. Or actually, there's this awesome other tattoo artist I met who does black and gray. I might have him do it, too. What about you? That's would you get up. a tattoo? I've been thinking about it actually very hard for the last couple of months. Um, I, I think I have something in my head, but I kind of don't want to say it out loud. But yes, uh, I think I would do it. I absolutely would do it. Do it. I think you should do it. Well, let's do it together. Come yes. to LA. Yes, next time I'm out there, let's do it. And that's our show. If you're curious to learn more about black and gray tattoos, there's a great documentary that gets deep into this called Tattoo Nation. Um, And then there's Freddie's memoir, Smile Now, Cry Later. It's a great read. There's a lot more to his story. We just scratched the surface with a single needle. I see what you did there. (laughs) All right, Gene, it's your turn. I've been doing all the songs giving us life lately. You have, you have, you yes. have. Yes, so give me the song giving you life. All right, let's keep it on the West Coast since we, that's what we're doing. Uh, I want to shout out uh, Bloody Waters. This very, very dope song by Absol, Anderson Pac, mm-hmm. uh, and James Blake. It's off the Black Panther soundtrack. It's been my workout playlist for the last couple of months. It's very dope. It's also very, very West Coast, which is usually not my, my thing when it comes to hip-hop. But What's so dope. West Coast about it? You just, you just listen to the way he says his words. Absol says... <laughs> He shouts out all these like LA spots, Dominguez, et cetera, et cetera, which I only really know from rap songs, but yeah. I had to be about nine when I first had seen it. Logos pulled up outside of the Ralphs. After a car show with Dominguez, they had a disagreement. They had to air out. Just another day in Y'all should follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. Do people still use email? I don't know. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. And subscribe to our newsletter, our very dope newsletter. You can do that at npr.org slash codeswitch newsletter. And if you're curious and want to see some tattoo pictures and want to see what Freddie looks like and some of his work, go to our blog, npr.org slash codeswitch. This episode was produced by Sammy Yenigan, Leah Danella, and me. And this episode was Edited by Sammy Anakin. A shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam. Kat Chow, Adrian Florido, Karen Grigby Bates, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Walter Ray Watson, Kumari Devarajan, and Steve Drummond. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. Be easy, y'all. Peace. Real quick, we wanted to shout out one of our NPR colleagues who died this week. 
Her name was Shanita Anderson, and she was a big part of the culture of NPR, particularly at Morning Edition. Um, she was a joy to be around. She was full of enthusiasm, and we wanted to make sure that we acknowledged her. Rest in power, homie. Do you love trivia, puzzles, nerdy games, and humor? What about interviews with actors, musicians, and people from all walks of life? Yeah? Then join me, Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another, every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts.